Hello, podcast land. Uh, Tour Guide Tell All is back in your ear holes. We are continuing our Women's History Month coverage in March uh, with a fantastically interesting woman. Uh, So we got another banger for you guys. But first off, I'm Rebecca. And I'm Becca. And we are the the Rebeccas. Rebeccas. (laughs) And we're here. It's exciting. Before we start off, I just want to mention really quickly, thank you guys for continuing to listen and being our pals. We enjoy coming into your ear holes every week, and uh, we are doing a promo. Our first ladies promo is continuing. We want to get a certain number of patron subscribers at any level, and then we're going to do a first ladies special series. We're going to let our patrons pick which first ladies they want to hear about. So we are ready. We want to talk about some hidden first ladies. So um, definitely, you know, your Lucretia Garfields, uh, your Grace Coolidge's, uh, your Florence Harding's. Uh, So start thinking about that. If you guys want to be a patron, this is the best time. If you know people who uh, like might like the pod, let them know about it. We are so excited. So give us an excuse to talk about some first ladies and we'll be very excited and grateful. But today, Becca... We're going to do some modern stuff. I think this is the most modern thing we've ever done. It's up there. Our topic comes a little later than Barbara Jordan, who we did last month for uh, Black History Month, mm-hmm. but also another incredible woman uh, here for Women's History Month. Um, we, yeah, we've done a few 20th century things. We've not done a lot that's sort of post-World War II or deeply rooted post-World War II. So I'm excited for us to get into a little bit more modern era. Mm-hmm. We've delved a little bit, but this is, I think, one of our most contemporary topics. So I'm really excited. I am too. I wanted to talk about this era so much. And it's tricky because some of the people we're going to mention and a lot of people in this era are still living and we try to not do people who are still living. But this is a really interesting era, like the sort of heart of the second wave feminism. And the woman we're going to talk about is just so great. Yes. So our episode today is about Florence Kennedy, who we're going to refer to as Flo, uh, which is what she called herself and what her friends called her and everybody called her Flo Kennedy. She really is, I think, an undersung hero of the feminist movement, of the women's liberation movement, and of the civil rights movement. She sits right at the intersection of these two movements, which we're going to use, I think, that word a lot, intersection and intersectionality, uh, will be kind of the theme for today. She is a figure that I think has faded into a little bit more obscurity today, but at a point in the 1970s, she was a really well-known figure. She was profiled in magazines. She was running around with very notable people of this era, and she overlaps with a lot of really important movements from the 1960s, 1970s, 1980s. So I'm really excited to tell her story, and I think it follows a really interesting arc for kind of the mid to late 20th century. So she is from Missouri. She was born in Kansas City, Missouri in 1916. So she's born in 1916, which seems like such a long time ago to talk about a figure from the 1970s, but it really isn't so much. Uh, Her father was a Pullman porter, which was a job, um, a very popular job for African-American men in this era. Uh, He would eventually move to being a taxi driver and be a taxi driver in Kansas City. Flo was one of 
five daughters. So you can imagine a lot of feminine energy in this family. They lived in a predominantly white neighborhood in Kansas City. This is something that Flo would talk about quite a lot in her lifetime, her upbringing. Uh, she would talk about the fact that she was raised to have a lot of pride in who she was and in her race and in her background, but that her parents also wanted the best for them and wanted to try to give them opportunities. And that often meant exposing them to white spaces. So they lived in a predominantly white neighborhood. And that meant that they were not always welcome. She would reflect as an adult about her father arming himself, learning how to use firearms and keeping guns in the house to protect themselves from the KKK. And the KKK was very much alive and active throughout her lifetime, but certainly uh, as a child. She's going to graduate from high school. Um, she's very smart, but there's not a lot of job opportunities at the time for a young Black woman. She does a lot of odd jobs. I love that she was an elevator operator because um, if you look at images of Flo Kennedy, which we'll obviously put that in the show notes, imagine her operating her elevator. Uh, she also worked in a hat shop, which also makes a lot of sense to me. Eventually, though, in 1941, she's going to move to New York City. She had stayed in Kansas City after her high school graduation to be with her family, but her mother passes away. And when her mother passes away, she feels like she can sort of maybe try a new phase in her life. So she moves to Harlem, where she lives with her sister, Grace. And I'm just going to jump in to say Florence, Grace, all of her sisters have the Y in their name. So it's not spelt the way that you think it might be spelt. I love that little kind of flourish in the name. Um, she goes to uh, New York City. It's oh, the wartime. You know, it's World War II is happening. So she uh, will have a lot of odd jobs. She's basically going to New York to be with her sister and to work and make money. She doesn't really intend to go to school, but then she's there. And New York City has good colleges. And she decides to go to Columbia. And she graduates from Columbia in 1949. At this point, you know, she's not a spring chicken per se. She's in her 30s. So she's kind of thinking, what do I really want to do with my life at this point? You know, I, I've done a bunch of different jobs. I, I put myself through school. And she's like, I want to be a lawyer. And so she goes to Columbia Law School. She applies. And she is rejected. And she's sort of, you know, thinking, okay, wait a second. <laughs> it's 1949. Why is my application rejected? And she goes to the dean. She demands a meeting with the dean of the law school. And the dean assures her it has nothing to do with race. That would be terrible. <laughs> it's just that they don't really, they don't really take women into law school. Because that makes it better. Because that makes it better. <laughs> <laughs> Which also, frankly, just sounds like a nicer cover for racism, if I'm being honest. Yeah. <laughs> Um, mm -hmm. This is where Flo really, I think, starts to act like the Flo that we're going to know and love is she threatens to sue them. <laughs> She's like, wait a second, you know, you can't deny me entry because of my race or my gender, and you can't pretend it's one and not the other. And so she threatens to sue. She basically threatens a big PR nightmare, and they let her in. They acquiesce and let her in. And she is one of eight women. So let's just talk about the fact that they obviously had accepted other women but also only eight women in the law school. And she was the only black woman. So very much race played a part in her re initial rejection. 
Oh, of course it did. This is not too surprisingly a moment that she will come back to over and over again in her career, talking about this moment, right? This rejection, this this moment of, am I being judged because of my gender? Am I being judged because of my race? Is it the combination of the two? Uh, and she really starts to see the importance of intersectionality, where women need to support women, where Black people need to support Black people, you know, where we need to be sort of supporting each other within our groups and outside of them as well. And the importance mm-hmm. of allyship and alliance, which is something she's going to talk about a lot. She goes to law school. She is really good at it. That's not too surprising. She's going to graduate in 1951, and she's going to open up her own law office a few years later, and she has some interesting clients. Yeah, I thought this was really interesting. She gets connected to the world of music, and she will go on to be the lawyer for Billie Holiday's estate, Charlie Parker, who's a jazz musician. Like, that's also got into plenty of trouble with the law. Oh, yeah, Charlie Parker <laughs> did get into plenty of trouble. She just, like, she defends kind of all these high-profile, interesting people, and she defends Valerie Solanas, who's the woman who attempts to murder uh, Andy Warhol in 1968. So she's, like very good at this and gets these really interesting and sort of high profile clients very quickly. And she also, while she's a lawyer, is going to get involved in political work as well. Like Becca just said, intersectionality is her main focus that we are, we need to work together because she's been discriminated against because she's black and because she's a woman. And so if we work together on all of these sorts of issues, uh, we can sort of solve them as one rather than the individual issues. And she really is very connected to the Black Power Movement. She's going to represent Black Panthers and other sort of group leaders uh, and that type. But she's also wants women, you know, one of her big quotes is wants women to examine the source of their oppression. Like this is very like anti-patriarchy feminist stuff. So you've got like, she's doing both the work in both places, which I find to be amazing. And you can imagine this often brings her to resistance. The Black Panthers do not always love that she's talking about patriarchy, that she's talking Mm -hmm. about oppression of women. The feminist movement does not always like that she's constantly reminding the women's movement that they need to be more inclusive, that they need to think about women of color. So she doesn't have any compunction about rubbing people the wrong way. She knows that sometimes to get things done, you have to tell the truth, you have to be frank, and you have to be aggressive. One of my favorite quotes from her really talks about just her view on our society. She says, my main message is that we have a pathologically, institutionally racist, sexist, classist society, and that niggerizing techniques that are used don't only damage Black people, but they also damage women, gay people, ex-prison inmates, prostitutes, children, old people, handicapped people, Native Americans, and that if we can begin to analyze the pathology of oppression, we would learn a lot about how to deal with it. And I mean, this is somebody talking in the 1960s. She's talking about things that we're still talking about today. And she just lays it out really, really clearly. Um, That's exactly what I was going to say. I was like, she could have given that quote yesterday. um, And so this is what she's about. She is working in the world of law. She is, um, because of her interesting background, the fact that she gets into law, I think a little bit later in her career, she's connected to the world of, of music and art and film and politics and advocacy. So she's moving in all these different circles, which is what I think makes her such a powerful advocate, because as she's continuing to work within the law, she's also very, very interested in working outside of it. And I don't necessarily mean doing anything illegal, but finding other ways than just making a change 
in the courtroom or at the ballot box. Protesting is really, really important to her. She will spend really all of her life organizing boycotts and protests. She says her protest style is making white people nervous, which you got to give her credit for that. <laughs> uh, she helps to organize in 1966 something called the Media Workshop, which establishes basically a group to help movements, to help organizations, to help activists and advocates learn how to utilize media for the movement and how to coordinate efforts across movements. So she wanted to, she realized, I think wisely, that there were plenty of activists who didn't understand TV radio, print advertising, talking to the press, that these were things that all the groups with big lobbyists understood. And if they wanted to make a change, they had to understand media. Additionally, um, the media workshop also recognized that what was being put out in mass media and in popular culture influences societal thought. And so they, she helped to organize boycotts and pickets of advertisers if they didn't feature Black people in their advertisements, they would um, protest shows if they featured representations that were not accurate or unflattering or stereotypical. Um, and they really were trying to bring sort of media to uh, accountability, which again is something I think we talk about a lot today, or we uh, throw around words that sort of talk about that today. But this is something that goes back to the 1960s. I love that she has like the 60s version of a social media strategy. That's kind of what she does with all of this, you know, coordinating efforts across movements and the intersectionality, but having like a media strategy, like that's the 2021 equivalent is having like a social media presence. Yeah. She understood branding. Yes. And she brands herself too. Like you'll see pictures of her. She's uh, particularly in this era. She's almost always in cowboy garb, uh, really ostentatious, uh, loud colors, sort of always dressed up in, you know, the sort of very typical cowboy hat and the vest and the whole thing. Like she, that was her deal. And um, just to sort of make herself stand out. So she understands the value of how she presented herself um, and how she looked to the outside world world, which are all really important things to think about if you want a career sort of, you know, in the public eye in this way. She's also going to organize a protest of the Miss America pageant in 1968, which Miss America definitely needs to be protested for a lot of reasons. But uh, she's going to protest that there are, it's not inclusive. There's no African, there are not enough African-Americans um, involved. And um, she's going to organize a protest of the pageant and she's specifically doing this to help recruit black feminists to her cause. Uh, a bunch of women get arrested and she's going to defend them in court. So she's organizing the protest and she knows enough about the law to sort of help when people get arrested, which is a really handy thing to know. You know, when you're getting arrested, know what your rights are and know someone who can help defend you. It's also to me a sort of a great throwback and she would have been a very very small child at this point but it's a throwback to what women were doing with the fight for the 19th amendment that if you're not getting arrested if you're not protesting on a scale that's causing some trouble you're not doing it right if you want to draw attention if you want to get that that eye that media eye again she knew that they couldn't just go and hold some signs up that says mrs america or miss america is sexist, they had to protest in such a way um, that would get them arrested because that's how you get the attention. 
Right. And that's how you move things. The narrative forward is, you know, your protest is supposed to be a little bit disruptive. Um, it's supposed to get people's attention. It's supposed to be, you know, sort of upset the apple cart. And there's a difference between protest and violence. And I think that that's an important thing that, you know, a lot of people understood in those days that protest is sort of how you move the narrative and how you get in people's faces. And you don't want, if you're just doing the same old, same old, nothing's going to change because it's the same old, same old. You got to push. Um, and I love that she just kind of innately understands that. It's not too surprising that, of course, in this era, as we're moving from the 60s into the 70s, she's running in big circles for civil rights, but also big circles for the women's liberation movement. She's particularly close with Gloria Steinem. She would have a very close friendship and working relationship with Gloria Steinem. Um, they will go on a lecture circuit together throughout the 1970s and 80s, where they would go and talk on these issues all around the country. They would talk about civil rights, about women's rights, um, certainly promoting uh, and supporting the ratification of the Equal Rights Amendment during this era. And you can imagine they would occasionally get heckled and mocked because that's what happens when you're a woman in public speaking your mind. Whenever they were asked if they were lesbians, which happened often, Flo would just say, are you my alternative? <laughs> which just makes me laugh. Just sort of like, if you're the alternative, I'll take Gloria. Uh, but which I just sort of love. She had a, a real way with words. We'll do some flow quotes towards the end because they're all just so good. She was a founding member of the National Organization of Women too. So Flo is right there, the birth of second wave feminism, if we want to call it that. But she actually defects from now. She leaves the National Organization of Women and helps to found a new women's party in 1971 called the Feminist Party, which um, it's not too dissimilar to bring it back to suffrage for a minute. It's not too dissimilar from, I think, Alice Paul and Lucy Burns breaking off with the National Women's Party, breaking off from NASA, uh, the National American Women's Suffrage Association, basically because um, Flo thinks now is too centrist. It's too safe. Um, it's too moderate. There's work to be done. And so she founds the Feminist Party to take more action, to, to do more demonstrations, to have what we may call more aggressive techniques, but also more effective techniques. And there's also now, which is formed partly by Betty Friedan, at the, particularly at the beginning, was um, really anti-lesbian. They didn't really want to include lesbians in their sort of rhetoric. Uh, and Flo Kennedy was like, no, we gotta, you know, all our sisters are here, man. The lesbian element was called the lavender menace. And Flo Kennedy was like, yeah, I'm not having that. Like lesbians are welcome. We're all in the struggle together. Like this is, we got to push forward progress. So I can see how, particularly in the early years, can see how that kind of got to Flo Kennedy. Absolutely. A hundred percent. Um, she also, Flo Kennedy, would be a founding member of the National Women's Political Caucus. So she's really there at this sort of intersection of all these major groups that are kind of being fomented at this time. One other kind of I think Plank and Flo Kennedy's activism was reproductive freedom and reproductive justice. She was unapologetically in favor of a woman's right to choose, unapologetic in her support for abortion, um, making it safe and legal. She is going to find um, some interesting ways to fight for this. She is actually going to bring tax evasion charges against the Catholic Church. So as a lawyer, she's actually going to bring a suit against the Catholic Church and she gets them for tax evasion 
basically arguing that if the Catholic Church is going to be engaged in a fight against reproductive rights, then they therefore have violated the separation of church and state, and therefore, like any other organization or group, have to pay taxes, which is an interesting way to sort of look at it. It does not work. Obviously, it does not work in court. But this kind of action is important. It brings the conversation to the forefront. And this is still, I think, not dissimilar from debates we have today about the role of churches and lobbying for some particular legislation. Flo was also one of the lawyers on the Abramowitz and Lefkowitz case, which was essentially a precursor to Roe v. Wade. So she was out there in the 1960s and early 1970s prior to Roe v. Wade, really doing the legal work to fight for reproductive rights. And she would uh, eventually be the lawyer for the Women's Health Collective after Roe v. Wade. In 1973, she co-founds the National Black Feminist Organization with Margaret Sloan Hunter. Uh, She is going to also organize something I promised in my notes, which I just love the most. She organizes something called the Great Harvard P.N. of 1973. And here's what this is. And I thought this was the best thing ever. I cackled when I read it. She organized a group of activists to show up at Harvard, like Harvard, with jars of fake urine. So jars that look like they're filled with pee at one of their halls, their so-called Lowell Hall, to protest that there aren't enough bathrooms for its female students. So they line them all up to sort of protest the fact that they don't have what's called potty parity. They don't have enough bathrooms for their female students. And it's funny, but it also like, it's a great visual and it really makes her point. And you can see that not only does she have a sense of humor, there's no issue that's too small. She's making a great statement. It's a fantastic visual. Uh, And she's also like, she doesn't care who she's offending too. Like she's going to Harvard and putting jars of fake urine on a 200 year old building, which is just fantastic. People Magazine is going to call her quote, the biggest, loudest, and indisputably the rudest mouth on the battlefield, which first of all, is amazing. And second of all, like People Magazine quotes you, you're doing something right in this like life. (laughs) Yeah, which is also, I mean, I feel like you're pretty well known if you're in People Magazine. Like that's not a magazine for inside the beltway, DC types. It's not for, you know, people who are on the ins and outs of what's happening. It's kind of like the everyday magazine. So she was well known enough to be called out at least in People Magazine. You know, doing research for this particular episode, uh, you have to dig a little bit deeper because she's not as famous as a Gloria Steinem or some of the other big figures from this era. But as you dig in and you read interviews, especially around the time that Flo Kennedy died in 2000, there was a bit of outreach to people who knew her and there were articles written. And when you see these articles, what people talked about over and over and over again were the salons, the gatherings at her apartment. This was a key way that she built relationships Mm -hmm. among movements, within movements, um, was to just get people together. And, you know, she didn't have a massive palatial apartment. She'd bring people into her little, like, classic kind of five-room apartment and just cram it full of people, cram it full of food, and let people debate, let people talk, let people strategize. This was really, you know, you went there before the protest, you went after, you went to socialize, you went to get organized. Um, and that was really, I think, her base of operations was the Saturday nights, right, with Flo. It was sort of like, this is what you do. And I read that she always had a pot of chili on 
and it was very welcoming and just, you know, she was outrageous, but super duper wanted everybody to kind of come and share ideas and wanted all sorts of people, white women, black women, lesbians, all sorts of people to kind of come congregate and organize together. She really believed in intersectionality and she believed that it started at the ground level. Like when you're exposed to different people from all over the spectrum, you get a different perspective uh, and it sort of informs the activism that you're undertaking. So I feel like that's really kind of key to her is that she's going to have everybody and anybody kind of over her house. And you can imagine like this radical woman in the uh, 1970s having all and sundry over to her New York City apartment. And New York City wasn't like it is today. New York City is full of like fancy stuff now. But back then, like New York City was not like the hip the way that it is now. And she just had everybody over and gave them chili and they all talked all night. And I love the idea of that. It's, it's such a, I think, old-fashioned way to think about organizing and advocacy and activism. Today, we, I think we're so savvy in that in many ways. You know, if you're part of any organization that's lobbying for anything, you know what your plan of action is. And we've lost a little bit of that. See what happens when you just throw some people in a room. You know, you're just talking. Nobody's on the phone. Nobody's on Twitter. Nobody's nobody's leaking anything. You're just working and strategizing. Um, and that's what she did. And she gave people a chance to break down barriers for, you know, Black power advocates to meet women's liberation activists, to meet gay rights activists, to let people from different walks and movements come together. And I think that's just something we still could use more of today, you know, getting outside of your immediate circle and bubble and confronting others. And she wasn't afraid of that. If you read some newspaper descriptions and stuff from this time. She's often contrasted with Gloria Steinem because they would go and lecture together. And, you know, Gloria Steinem was was so polished and together. And she uh, had a particular look and a particular style. And Flo had hers. But when it came to sort of not fashion style, but sort of rhetorical style. Flo was a down and dirty kind of type. And like, you know, let's let's say the uncomfortable thing. Let's get up into our uncomfortable space because that's where we can move past and start getting the real work done. Uh, and I think she acted on that in every facet of her life. And I guess, yeah, her appearance is something we should really, I think, mention again. Uh, you mentioned the cowboy look. She also was a huge fan of her pink sunglasses. Everything you read is like she's in her signature pink sunglasses. She always wore fake lashes. That was an everyday accessory for her. Big fake eyelashes. Just wild kind of clothing in general. Wanting to really make a statement, make herself seen. And I think make people a little uncomfortable confronting you with your discomfort was very much a Flo Kennedy standard. I feel like that kind of speaks to sort of why she's important, but also perhaps why she's not as well known because people don't like to feel uncomfortable, you know, and they don't like to be confronted with their inherent thoughts of, you know, prejudices and biases and things. They want something, they want their, people tend to want their protests a little bit more palatable. And Flo Kennedy was not that person. She was kind of in your face. She was sort of rude and she dressed to be noticed. And if you disapproved of her, she didn't care. Like that was, that's very much sort of part of her aesthetic. She was just an original, I feel like in a, in a very crucial way. 
And this is something that she's going to just continue to do through the rest of her life. Uh, We're talking primarily about sort of the 60s and 70s, but she doesn't stop. Uh, She doesn't stop any of this work. She's going to fight against racism, against sexism, against economic injustice, against reproductive injustice. She's going to be fighting for this in the 1980s and the 1990s until about the mid-90s. Flo Kennedy lives until 2000, although poor health is really going to sort of sideline her in those last uh, several years of her life. She actually suffered a spinal injury from a protest in the 1940s where she was injured and that really plagued her through her life. And she's going to start to have incredible pain and mobility issues towards the end, um, which is, I think, another reason perhaps why she's not as well remembered today is during a period of time where I think we were rediscovering or sort of looking back to a lot of our our women liberation leaders in the late 1990s, early 2000s. um, She was out of the public spotlight and then she passed away. I just, it was really hard because I just, the whole time we were doing research, I wrote down like everything she ever said because all of it is amazing and hilarious. I really like (laughs) when you want to get to the sweets, start in the streets, which I like because it rhymes, but I I love that. I love freedom is like taking a bath. You got to keep doing it every day, which I think is such a great perspective on democracy, really. Um, she had a lot of really interesting quotes about abortion and about reproductive rights. She mm-hmm. is credited with, if men could get pregnant, yeah. abortion would be a sacrament, Yeah, which we have lots of different versions of that and lots of different versions from women's liberation leaders. But she certainly, I think, isn't wrong that if men could get pregnant, things would be very, very different. <laughs> and then I really love her quote about marriage. She was really anti-marriage her whole life. She's like, I'm not going to get married. It's not for me. I'm a feminist. I'm I'm an individual. She says, why would you lock yourself in the bathroom just because you have to go three times a day? Which is a really good, interesting perspective on marriage. Um, She's got a point, I guess. But she did get married. Uh, In 1957, she married a man named Charles Dye, who was an author and an activist as well. He died three years after they got married. So it was very short-lived. She never did remarry, but despite her sort of talk against marriage, Charles must have had something special enough that she she married him, but a very short marriage. Um, and she doesn't talk a lot about her marriage with him after the fact. Um, so it's not a part of her activism or a part of her public persona. Now, um, she also, if you are interested in seeing Flo Kennedy today, like she also ended up appearing in a few films because she was kind of running with this artsy crowd in New York in the 60s and 70s. So she's pops up in a few movies, none super, super famous, but you can like find her on IMDb and she's got movies. She did some narrations as well, uh, including one for a documentary on apartheid. So she has done some work as well. So uh, she wrote a biography or an autobiography. So you can get Florence in her own words. Uh, she wrote a book called Color Me Flow which is just a great title for an autobiography. So she's a fun subject because she is, she wrote about her life, which is very helpful. As a historian, we love that first person account, but because she did pop up in some film and a few other places, you can sort of see her in action a little bit. She also acted with Morgan Freeman in one of her films too. Like she has this great, very early, um, I think he must've been insanely young. Uh, But in 1971, she's in the movie called Who Says I Can't Ride a Rainbow with Morgan Freeman. Ah, yes. The award-winning. Award-winning, yeah. Who says you can't ride a rainbow? Yeah. I just. Somebody should ask Morgan Freeman about that movie. 
I mean, 1971, she must have been in her 50s, right? Am I doing the math right? Yeah, she must have been in her mid-50s. Morgan Freeman could not have been that old. I mean, that's 50 years ago. Just so amazing to me that she, like, she knew Charlie Parker and uh, Billy, like, was involved in Billy Holiday's estate and acted with Morgan Freeman and went on the lecture circuit with Gloria Steinem. Like, all of these people are like household names. Like, it's just incredible to me. Yeah, it's in my mind. She's so associated with a particular time period. It's easy for me to sort of think of her as a different age than she was. When she passes away in 2000, she's 84. So she's not young per se. And a bulk of this advocacy time in her life, right, the 60s and 70s, this peak era, she's not in her 20s. She's not a firebrand right out of school. She's someone who had built up to that point. And because she she lived life and she uh, had experiences before she got into the world of being this activist and advocate. I do think there's a little bit of a reclaiming of Flo Kennedy today. There have been some articles. There's one particular book I want to mention that I think is very good, uh, The Life of a Black Feminist Radical by Sherry Randolph, which came out a few years ago, um, exceptionally well-researched and really, I think, the first comprehensive book about Florence Kennedy, where she's not just kind of a side character from the movement. Florence Kennedy also shows up as a recurring character in the Mrs. America TV series that was on Hulu, uh, FX Hulu. Uh, Rebecca, you want to give a quick summary on Mrs. America? Oh, yes. Uh, So Mrs. America is about exactly this time period. It is about the struggle for the ERA to pass the Equal Rights Amendment. And it's about second wave feminism. Kate Blanchett, who produces it, also stars in it as uh, Phyllis Schlafly. Uh, It's about Gloria Steinem and Betty Friedan. You've got Bella Abzug, Shirley Chisholm. uh, And Flo Kennedy, who's played by the amazing and gorgeous Niecy Nash, is a sort of secondary character involved in the movement. And she is, she's just so great. You've got Nisi Nash all dressed up in the cowboy garb and it's fantastic, but it's about the sort of struggle for second wave feminism. There's a lot of links to sort of how the feminist movement and the conservative movement are going to part ways uh, and how they sort of inform the next sort of 50 years of American politics. So there's really a lot of parallels to what's kind of happening politically now, but it's really a great series, partly because of Flo Kennedy, but partly because of everybody else. It's really interesting. Yeah. Agreed, 100%. I love Miss America. We're biased uh, because with our very good friends at A Tour of Her Own, Rebecca and I have developed a course that looks at Mrs. America and uses it to sort of teach this time period, uh, which is really, really exciting. And so I've loved uh, having a chance through developing that course to really dig in on Flo Kennedy. Uh, And DC Nash just does an incredible job. So if you want a good, I think, uh, taste of what she was probably like in life. I think that's a really good performance. There was also a movie that came out last year in 2020 called The Glorias, which uh, is directed by Julie Taymor and looks at Gloria Steinem and her life, particularly her travels on the lecture circuit. So Florence Kennedy plays a role in that movie. A full disclosure, I've not watched it yet and I plan to probably at some point soon, but the wonderful actress Lorraine Toussaint plays Florence Kennedy and she did a really wonderful three minutes video for The Root online magazine that kind of talks about Florence Kennedy's life. And I'll put that in the show notes because I think it's a really good distillation of what Florence Kennedy means for so many feminists, but also for so many Black women. And then finally, I think it's just a good, we cannot say it better than flow. I think we should end with a flow quote. I think this might be one of my favorites. 
you've got to rattle your cage door. You've got to let them know that you're in there and that you want out. Make noise, cause trouble. You may not win right away, but you'll sure have a lot more fun. Couldn't say it better myself. I love it. <laughs> and that's Florence Kennedy. Thanks for coming along with us. Uh, we're having a lot of fun with Women's History Month, and we got a banger coming next week, guys. I'm really excited. Next week, we won't say, but we're doing somebody who Rebecca has wanted to do really from day one. And it's sort of insane so that we've gone a year and not talked about her. So I am so, so excited. This is going to be a really, really great episode. Uh, what we're going to be, we'll be in the 20th century again, but we'll take it back a little bit. We'll roll it back a little. Yeah. Yeah, no <laughs> hints, no hints. Um, <laughs> so thanks guys for coming. Uh, as always, if you want to interact with us, we are on the Facebooks and the Twitters and the Instagrams at Tour Guide Tell All. Uh, at Twitter, we're at Tour Guide Tell. Uh, you can email us, tourguidetellall at gmail.com. We love to hear from people. If you have ideas, we are putting together our late spring and summer schedule. So we want to know what you want to hear about. Uh, we have some great plans, but we are open to uh, your influence. Tell us how we can, what we can talk about, how we can do better, what you like, what you don't like. Uh, we love to interact with people. Thank you so very much for listening. And uh, we will be back next week. Yes. Thank you so much to our listeners. I just want to take a moment as we say goodbye to thank Craig Bell, who's better known as that DC dude. You can check out his videos on YouTube. He has a great website, Offbeat and Path DC. He sent us just the nicest email um, about the podcast. And it just is so great to hear from people who are listening. We love your feedback. Craig sent us some amazing suggestions. So I think we're going to have a special episode coming up, uh, digging into an aspect of DC. I didn't even think for us to explore, but makes a ton of sense. So please know that if you email us, we read everything and any of your ideas can make their way into the podcast. So thank you guys so much. Thank you, Craig. Your email like made my month, <laughs> made my life. Um, it was so awesome. Uh, and that goes for every single one of you listeners. We just love you guys so much. It's Women's History Month. Be out there reading women, supporting women, learning about women. Have a good one. Thanks, guys. Bye. Bye. <laughs> I'm your host, Candon Arseniega. Dan King and I do the intros, the editing, the admin. Becca Grawl and Rebecca Fackner do the research and the talking. We are all guys for free tours by foot in Washington, D.C. This is Tour Guide Tell All. Until next time, 